Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, steelmakers in Hamilton and across the country are concerned over the federal decision to abandon trade safeguards. Also, Hamilton Chief Police Eric Gert is here for the Chief's Town Hall. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Steelmakers in our city and across the country right now are concerned over the federal government's decision to abandon these trade safeguards that they had put in place some months ago. And uh, there's a great deal of consternation being raised about this, that this may actually open the doors for not a, a lots of illegal dumping from other steelmakers in other parts of the world. Uh, Bob Bertina is the uh, MP for uh, Hamilton East Stony Creek. He is also, of course, the uh, co-chair of the uh, Canadian All-Party Steel Caucus up in Ottawa. And he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give some perspective on this. Bob, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Great. And when you have the chief on later on, uh, you should ask him to bring his uh, the rest of his male singing quartet who entertained us at the Chiefs Gala last week. They oh, yeah. are really outstanding. Was oh, that right? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm sorry I missed that one. I will ask him about that. All I'll right. ask him to sing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I, what's, you've heard the concerns from the steel industry on this. Maybe before we get into that, Bob, explain yeah. exactly what the government action was and why. Well, the Canadian International Trade Tribunal uh, evaluated the safeguards that had been put in place uh, some months ago and determined that of the seven that were put on, five of them were really no longer um, useful or complying with uh, the issues at hand, which was the risk to the steelmakers. The steelmakers have another opinion, but the... First of all, the tribunal's uh, decision was that the five of them uh, should come off. So the finance minister had an opportunity to override that, but he chose not to. And so uh, we're, we're taking another tack to try to ensure that the steel making in Canada remains viable and that the jobs of steel workers are protected. So, uh, so another process is taking place. But... In fairness to the finance minister, uh, we're accusing Donald Trump uh, of overlooking or ignoring uh, past protocols and just doing whatever he wants. And in a way, this is what the demand was on the finance minister to say, well, never mind what the tribunal says. Uh, and the WTO, well, Trump doesn't really like that anyway. Uh, it won't get to them. But uh, the, the minister felt that uh, be, he should follow the established protocols with regard to the trade tribunal. Secondly, unintended consequences, because there's a whole group of steel consumers who did not want the safeguards and who might be in a position. These are contractors, the people who buy the rebar and, and build buildings with it. And so they were in a strong position uh, against retaining the safeguards. So that was the dilemma that the government was in. But as you know, Bob, uh, the five uh, areas here where they said it's time to lift these things are all going to have an impact on the Hamilton steel industry. That's ArcelorMittal and, and DeFasco, the only, and of course Stelco. The only two that they've left there that are still going to be under protection, I guess, are pretty much irrelevant to this area. So I, can you understand that there's some legitimate concern here about what this is going to do to the Hamilton operations? Well, of course, and that's why other measures are being looked at. There's a 30-day consultation period uh, getting underway with the Canadian Steel Producers Association and others. They've been given a mandate to examine uh, other uh, remedies to uh, achieve what the safeguards uh, had intended to achieve. So 
uh, that will be a 30-day process. There are also, I understand from both the Canadian steel producers and the finance department, other options that may be available, which uh, we're not talking about right now publicly, but uh, the fact is that the government understands the problem and is looking at ways to get around the problem without having to simply override the, the tribunal decision and say, well, uh, thanks for your work, but we're not doing that. So the main thing I would say is the integrity of, of government processes and unintended consequences. Uh, I, I, we understand that, and the unintended consequences can be severe at times. We understand. Is there no appeal process, though? Because it sounds from what you're describing as if uh, the government's not really uh, supportive of, of, the, of the tribunal's decision here, but they're going to go along with it anyway. Well, the tribunal did hear from all sides. Uh, they they didn't make it was not four guys in a room saying, uh, "Ah, let's drop the safeguards." They heard testimony, and they evaluated their data. And uh, steel producers would say that some of the data is faulty. They're standing by the information that they have, and so we are where we are. But they there was plenty of um, of interchange exchange uh, between the steel producers and the trade tribunal before they reach their decision. So it's not really a matter of appeal. The, the discussion had already taken place. I think basically the steel producers, rightfully so, were appealing through their members of parliament and through the media uh, to raise public awareness of the whole thing because you know, most of us uh, not so long ago not me especially because I'm on the Steel Caucus, but you know the general public would, would not really get a lot of this stuff until the 232 from the United States, all of the things that Trump's imposed on steel in Canada. So now we're fully engaged with it, and uh, but we have to be careful that we don't make bad decisions because bad decisions have been made in the past. And one of the reasons that the steel workers, for instance, were in a terrible pension deficit situation was a decision made by the NDP government of the province of Ontario in 1992. And that was the decision, too big to fail, let's uh, change the pension rules so that big companies don't have to uh, make all their contributions. Stelco took advantage of that in 1996, and by 2004 their pensions were a billion dollars in deficit. So it seemed like a good idea at the time. That was the outcome, and we're still paying for it. So what are the options at this stage? I think the concern I'm hearing from a lot of the steel workers is, look, there's a void here right now. Uh, and however long it might take you to develop alternative policies, in the meantime, the steel's on its way. As, as one indicated, there's cargo ships of it coming to Canada now. That's my understanding, too, that uh, the oceans are afloat with boatloads of steel. And so uh, one of the uh, considerations, uh, one of the things actually that the Americans were not happy with us about was uh, the lack of uh, monitoring uh, of this, this steel coming in because for the Americans it's about transshipment. Something ends up in Canada and gets painted or you know washed down with soap and water and then becomes a Canadian product and then ends up in the United States. So they they have valid concerns about that, but we've also bolstered the Canadian Border Services and we're promising to uh, take more action to prevent this steel from coming in. Whether we achieve that or not, well, that remains to be seen. But certainly we're aware of it, we're trying to deal with it, and uh, we'll see what, what happens. But in the meantime, uh, we need to hear from 
the consultation period over the next 30 days about are there other ways just as or maybe more effective than the safeguards to achieve the same purpose. Have there been any discussions about that? I mean, you had to know what this was going to be a possibility, if not a probability. Well, the safe uh, the discussions have been taking place uh, as the transition on the safeguards uh, out of the from the tribunal decision uh, were, was becoming obvious that the government had a, a difficult position, and so they had meetings. They they created uh, the consultation process, so there are chairs and vice chairs and and mandates and and a time schedule, so that that process is virtually underway now. And, and what's the time frame? Because obviously there's a lot of anxious days. people right here. Yeah, 30 days. It's it's a 30-day process because you can't sit around and wait on things like this. And, and we, uh, we get, everybody gets it, but we're, we're in a difficult uh, situation uh, if we run against the trade tribunal for, uh, for the reasons that I stated. And so uh, the other thing, though, that we, we need to understand is that the steel companies continue to actually make money uh, up until maybe today or yesterday. Uh, but uh, it's it's the most amazing thing. And one thing I'm curious about, and I'm trying to get some information, I drove down uh, Burlington Street the other day. There's a lot of construction equipment and temporary buildings uh, on the Stelco site. And I'm trying to determine whether they're actually uh, making some investment into upgrades on their facilities, because that's been the rumor for some time whether it's the blast furnace, steel making, upgrades to uh, the pickle line or, or other uh, processes that they have, it seems there seems to be activity there. So that would be a good sign that uh, whatever the case, the company's still uh, willing to make investments. I don't know that for sure right now. I'm in a committee meeting that I've got to get back into right now, but yeah. when I'm finished, I'll try to follow up on that. We'd, uh, and please check in with us. I would like to get that information. Bob, thanks. I know I'd be to pull you out of a meeting. Appreciate the time today. Bill, thanks so much. That's uh, Hamilton uh, East Stony Creek MP Bob Bertina, of course, uh, who co-chairs the uh, All-Party Steel Committee. So is this a big deal for the industry? Is, is uh, Seemingly, the, the government's uh, attitude here seems to be we got this under control. Let's uh, bring Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University on the conversation. Good morning, Ian. How are you doing today? I'm doing just very well, uh, thanks. Bill. Good. The, the, the government seems to say, look, it, no big deal. We, we've got, we'll, we'll develop a plan B. Everything's going to be fine. The industry are wringing their hands right now and saying, in the meantime, uh, there are boatloads of foreign steel that are going to get dumped into Canada right now, and it's going to hurt our industry, probably hurt our relationship with the United States. Uh, who's right here, or is there a middle ground? I think there is a middle ground, and this may shock you, Bill, because I have been very critical of this government on on many of its economic policies, our disastrous relationship with China, our um, degraded relationship with the United States. But this is one time where I do agree with the uh, the Liberal government in Ottawa. Um, I have studied the steel industry extensively for my classes and, and MBA because this comes up frequently. Not only the the steel industry per se, but the larger issue of how do you respond when there's a huge overhang on the market, in plain English, the mark, the steel market around the world, the steel industry, is producing way too much steel uh, for the demand, relative to the demand. And, and so what can governments do? Um, the reason, uh, let's put this into context, by the way, and, uh, and I'm not trying to be cruel or unkind. I'm very sympathetic to people who are, you know, possibly losing their jobs. But this industry employs about 22,000 Canadians out of 18 million. Uh, this is StatsCan data. 
There's 18 million Canadians employed, public and private sector, majority in the private sector, over 14 million of the 18 million are in the private sector writ large in our country. So the steel industry is relatively tiny. That does not mean that they're less important people, of course not, or that we should exp- uh, have a less uh, you know, compassion towards them. I'm just trying to contextualize it and say, look, everybody, <laughs> this is not <clears throat> the auto industry, and I'm not saying that they deserve special treatment either. I'm just trying to put it into context. We're talking 22,000 jobs that are critically important to those 22,000 employed in that industry, for sure. Now let's very quickly deal with this issue, because the steel industry has said, my God, we're going to be subject to dumping and all the manner of horrible things. There are laws now on the books that have been on the books for years and years and years. If any country engages in dumping, which is defined legally, it has a technical meaning, it's not a a buzzword, it's not a cliche, that it means if you are selling below the cost of your production, that's dumping. And there are countries that have done it. They tend to be non-market countries, like China, authoritarian countries, where they're very focused on keeping their employment numbers up, and it's less important whether you actually make money or not, because they're state-owned enterprises. But we do have laws to prevent against dumping. So now I'm getting to the rub of the argument that's critical that is not coming up in this conversation. I don't mean with you, but with the people you're talking to. Our laws have evolved since the Second World War, and I'm sorry for the sort of academic little lecture here, big picture, but just... just no, it's good to get context on this stuff, Yeah, man. We evolved these laws, and I'm talking the GATT that eventually became the WTO, over 70 years because we wanted a rule-of-law-based set of rules and not capricious, Trumpian-type people who just get up one day and say, oh, I'm going to put tariffs on willy-nilly, arbitrarily. So we evolved the WTO. We evolved an elaborate set of rules. And we even allow tariffs and interference under certain conditions. And that is precisely dumping, where the other side is cheating. And then that requires an investigation by a trade tribunal, such as we have in Ottawa and they have in Washington and they have in Europe, where they look at enormous amounts of data and facts and figures. As you know, because it was reported in the paper in Hamilton, the uh, CITT, uh, the Canadian Tribunal, Trade Tribunal, that investigates these things, found that only two of the seven steel markets need any kind of special protection. In other words, let me decode that. They were saying, this is my interpretation, but I think it's reasonable, that there is not dumping as of this moment in five of the seven steel markets. There is aggressive competition But we have to distinguish between legitimate competition, head-to-head competition, where you're not dumping, selling below the cost of your production. You're just maybe, maybe you invested in the latest technology, so your steel is cheaper uh, or higher quality than the other guy because you've been investing in your capital equipment, for example. That's considered legitimate competition. And so you can, I think you can see where I'm going, and this is not to at all pour scorn on the workers there. The, the companies have to make, and I've been teaching this stuff for 35 years, it's called corporate and business strategy. They must adopt strategies to respond to the competition. If the competition is making better steel or cheaper steel, let's leave China out of this because China cheats. We all know that. How do we know that? Because the European Trade Tribunal and the U.S. Trade Tribunal determined they were cheating. Let's leave them out. If there are other countries that are exporting their steel to us and they're beating us, meaning they're selling their steel over our steel, maybe that's a wake-up call. 
for the steel companies to uh, sharpen their pencils and say, you know what, we've got to become more competitive. And because the CITT, the Trade Tribunal, ruled that there wasn't, essentially wasn't cheating going on in 507 steel markets, this should serve as a wake-up call. I'm not talking to the workers. I'm talking to the CEO. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to the CFO. I'm talking to the, if they have a chief technology officer. Because what I'm trying to say is, if you think you're going to save your company by uh, protectionism, it's not going to work in this competitive world where we do have a WTO and we do have trade agreements. And if people say, what about Trump? I have two short answers. Trump is not going to be president forever. He's going to leave office shortly in 2020 or at the very, very latest 2024. And in the long scheme of history and competitiveness, that's just just a moment in time. They've got to develop long-term strategies to make their companies stronger and more competitive. And that typically in this industry means investing in state-of-the-art technologies. I'm not blaming the workers. I'm blaming the CEOs for not for possibly lagging and not being as competitive as say the German steelmakers or maybe the American steelmakers or some other companies. They've got to invest in cutting edge technology to retain their competitive advantage. We're going to have to leave it there for now. We're just about out of time for this part of it. Anyway, this is our story. It will not go away anytime soon. Ian, thanks as always. Really appreciate your perspective on this. Thanks very much, Bill. Ian Lee from the Sports School of Business. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It is time for the Chiefs Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is with us here in studio for the entire hour. Welcome. Good to see you again, Chief. Thank you, uh, and great to be here, Bill. Lots to talk about today. Maybe what we can get into right off the bat is uh, a story that uh, we carried last week um, about uh, investigations with Hamilton Police Services. Charges laid in uh, less than a third of Hamilton's recent shooting incidents, and sadly there have been a lot of shooting incidents. Uh, that's a statistic that some people are concerned about. Maybe you could explain why the, the number is so low. Yeah, and the context is, you got to remember that many of these are just shots fired at a house with either no video, nobody knew who fired the rounds. We find the casings the next day. There may be rounds that strike the house or not. So really in terms of evidence, there's not a ton of evidence there. Um, and that's the bulk of what actually the shootings that are involved with. So whether that's for intimidation or, and God help them, they get the wrong house, uh, it certainly concerns us. Well, that's happened before. That's true. And, but, uh, you know, where we've had homicides, and we have, uh, in fact, uh, then we have arrests in those. We have an arrest in the shooting that, that ended up in an aggravated assault. Um, so, you know, where we have evidence, where we have complainants, where people are telling us what happened, uh, then we work to solve those. Where we can get information on the others, we certainly solve those too. Uh, but often, as you know, people are not telling us certain things. as well, we know that. Where complainants say, I, I have no idea why that would happen, and yet they may very well. I can remember when we had the uh, the shooting uh, that, that Sunday morning. This was a couple of years ago, I guess, uh, down around uh, yes. Victoria and Main Street. Yep. And uh, I'm, former Chief DeCare was just doing the town hall at that particular time, and I asked him how the investigation was going on air. And he said, apparently everybody was in the bathroom uh, because nobody <laughs> was talking. And, uh, s- somebody knows something, but they just don't seem to be one of forthcoming about anything. Correct. And my bathroom doesn't hold 100 people, but uh, in cases where you've got a community hall that does house, you know, 250 people, they can't all be in the bathroom at the same time, to your point. Um, but obviously people see things. We understand, you know, the trepidation. So that's why we talk about Crime Stoppers uh, with guaranteed anonymity. Uh, they will give us investigative leads. That's open at any time in any investigation. Uh, so we're willing to, uh, you know, get the information. And if people feel uh, threatened or whatever, there's other avenues. 
What about those those investigations then? Uh, and, and are these ongoing investigations, or do you just kind of this is a, 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 a subset, as you say, shots fired, but you're not exactly sure there was no victim necessarily? Uh, do you still treat that as as, a, as a, an investigation that needs to be followed through? Yeah, they're always open, but even, you know, we take it to the nth degree. You're looking at homicide investigations that they call cold cases. We never actually close them. Do you have sufficient evidence to either proceed with charges? And keeping in mind, uh, there's two tests. There's reasonable grounds to arrest somebody in the first place, and then there's a reasonable prospect of conviction, which, of course, you have to meet the threshold of in a court beyond a reasonable doubt. Pretty high threshold. Uh, so we may have theories, we may have uh, our, our certain perspective on who we think did it, uh, but in order to arrest and convict, that's a different threshold. There's a guns and gang squad still, is there not? Uh, we do have a standing squad, but we also have the Make a Safe Task Force that we constructed as well that involves many of the units working on this issue. Because what I'm hearing and when one of these incidents happen, and as we mentioned, they're, they're happening with way too much frequency, of course. I'm talking about shootings. Yep. Uh, you know, someone's known, to, and they said, well, you know, the public's not in danger. Well, you know, but somebody's firing a gun. Yeah, of course the public's in danger. But but I would imagine that you know some of these people that mm-hmm. that, that old idea there so and so is known to police. Yeah. Uh, now and I know that I, I get emails from people saying why can't they just go in and arrest those guys? Then they know they're bad guys. They know they have guns. Not that not that simple, is it? Well, no, I don't believe the provision in the criminal code says if you're a bad guy, it can arrest you. It has to be with reasonable grounds that you've committed the offense. And I'm not trying to be facetious, but that's our test. Relative to a specific unit working on it in isolation, no, because you can get, and we had a recent example where the number of firearms seized, uh, where we got the information it was youths involved, which is disturbing again. We've got a homicide involving youths as well. Uh, but that information flowed from the front line. It flowed actually from a divisional youth officer. So all the units are certainly aware of this and the information flow uh, you know flows into your point it's that little piece you get from one unit or another or another you put it together and of course we know that it's linked to, to our, our drug branch in terms of the targets they're looking at how much uh, coordination is there between police services between yourself halton toronto niagara Unfortunately, the crime knows no borders. Exactly. And that's actually, we met with the minister recently um, and actually his aide, uh, Dean French, uh, and that's what uh, resonated with them. And we understand that part. Uh, Part of the funding that they've looked at, the reallocating resources to looking at interagency uh, task force, which I agree with. And we've been a participant for many years. Um, Mind you, uh, you know, when they were looking at the the austerity in police services, many of the services pulled out of those areas because they said, well, I have to do frontline policing. I can't do, you know, whether it's a uh, joint forces task force or whatever. We have not taken that position. We have tried to participate, whether it's in anti-terrorism, uh, gangs and weapons unit, we're part of that. We're part of uh, a biker enforcement unit. We're part of JFOs. We're doing all that work uh, because we think, to your point, you need to work between agencies. It could be Brantford. It could be Guelph. It could be York Peel, whoever, Durham. Uh, certainly with the 400 corridors uh, around the, the GTA and certainly into Hamilton, um, we know that the uh, criminals are, are working, as you say, in a borderless uh, way. Well, it would make a lot of sense, uh, especially if we're, we're going to get into the realm of organized crime. And uh, we had another shooting last yep. week yep. Uh, outside of this jurisdiction, but yep. again, somebody who is known to Hamilton police mm-hmm. in a situation like that. So th- there's got to be dialogue between police services, I would think, in a situation like that. And, we, and we, we've seen that with some of the other uh, murders that have happened over the last two years. Correct. And we work very closely with York, as you know, on the Ange uh, Mustano homicide. 
and held that uh, conference. Uh, at the time, it was Tom Kariku who was their deputy, now the commissioner of the OPP. Um, so, yeah, we work in tandem where we've got those connections. Um, and it's not a formal task force in that case, but it can be under the major crime where you have cross-jurisdictional investigations going on. So we use that model constructed after the Bernardo, because that's where major crime uh, model came out of. And the whole idea is that you don't have silos. So how do you how do you discern who's going to do what in one of those multitasking and, and multi-divisional uh, and multi-service uh, investigations? Uh, is it where the crime occurred? Or is it where there's the most information? How how do you make that determination? It's usually the crime of jur- or where the crime occurred, the jurisdiction. Uh, but under major case uh, model with uh, with inter um, interagency, then you have a major case manager who is cross jurisdictionally changed or chart or sorry trained trained. So the idea is they discern who's going to do what within that that model and who takes um, who takes the lead on various uh, files. Um, but we have done that. For example, Bosma is one of those cases. Uh, it was actor, a detective, uh, an inspector from the OPP who headed that up as a cross-jurisdictional when we were dealing with the Bosma investigation and, of course, uh, the two homicides in Toronto as well. Uh, back to the organized crime element, though. We just talked about these forces, the police services. Uh, the ones we haven't talked about yet, of course, are the RCMP and the OPP, who are also around here, too. And uh, when it comes to monitoring uh, and keeping an eye on what's happening in organized crime, uh, I would imagine they do a f- I would the lion's share, I guess, of that sort of stuff, simply because they probably have more resources than police services do. But is there a sharing of information of, of that material? Oh, definitely. I think probably the best, and I know it's not organized crime, but under the Provincial Anti-Terrorism Unit, and we have members who are assigned to that, they're coordinated both with the OPP and the RCMP. Uh, one of the big things we look at in those is when you have the preliminary information come in, to verify it before you kind of whip up the frenzy in the public to state, oh, this is the threat. Like just the threat alone is not enough. It could be, but we uh, verify that and all the other agencies that are connected to that, we rely on the federal perspective, the provincial perspective, and the local perspective before we start uh, raising the alarm bells or doing the increased security, all those things, because it can be a hoax or it could be true. So you want to test that before you start applying the resources. Well, we saw that. There's a report last week, of course, that uh, in, I guess, in some wiretapping procedure in this area, uh, there was some discussion about a possible hit on, on Pat Musitano. I'd, when that information is heard, uh, how, how do you respond? How do you handle something like that? Yeah, and it's not a new thing. Uh, so we have an obligation if we know actually that it is substantiated. Obviously, we're going to take action if we know who the players are, uh, but where it's just kind of floating in the air, and then we will often make contact with the potential target and say, this is what we know. People might find that odd, uh, but we actually have met with, in some cases, organized crime figures to say, here's what we know, because there's a due diligence aspect from uh, you knew about a potential hit. Did you advise the person accordingly? So we do. Oftentimes, as you can imagine, we get certain standard responses when we tell these people certain things, and it's usually with four-letter words, and they tell us to be on our way. Um, some people express gratitude in different ways. They do. That's yeah, true. Yeah, I get that. So, I mean, uh, you know, our, we've met our obligation in terms of certain letting know. And, you know, we, d- we certainly don't support homicides and we don't support uh, vigilante justice. I mean, that's part of the rule of law. And people may think, well, that's odd. Uh, but no, it's not. And we will let them know and tell them what we can under the circumstances to keep them safe. With situations 
such as what we're discovering right now, uh, clearly there's something going on. And uh, I, I think you'd be naive to th- not to think that, look, at this, connect the dots here with the, the things, the, the homicides that have happened over the last two, two and a half years here. Uh, at what point do you sit down with OPP or RCMP and say, you, you know, give me the bigger picture here? Because th- clearly it appears anyways if there are external sources that are having an impact on what's going on here. Yeah, and we're routinely working on these things, as you know, and if you saw the transcripts from uh, the Part 6 that you were referring to, you know, things are veiled or they're disguised, they're not direct, they have a code, all that type of things. You know, we'll go to common culture again, people talking with their uh, their hands over their mouth so you can't have lip readers, uh, where they meet so they can't be um, audio tracked in terms of what they're saying. All that stuff's going on. We're certainly aware of it. Is there a shifting of positions? I know you've had Peter Edwards on here. I think you might have had James Dubrow as yeah, well. Yeah. James Dubrow has written a lot about the Hamilton situation, and, and I've read his books. They're, they're quite compelling. Uh, but, you know, this is about making money. This is about uh, victimizing the public, in my opinion. Uh, you've got, whether it's uh, organized um, crime, whether it's uh, outlaw motorcycle gangs or traditional organized crime or Asian organized crime or European organized crime, any of those, uh, quite frankly, they don't really care about the public and they're out to make money. And this image of, oh, they're just good guys or misunderstood, um, you think all you really have to do is watch the common, uh, you know, culture, whether it's the Sopranos or otherwise, and you get a view into what's really going on, their motivations uh, in terms of loyalty, how that works. You have family members who are killed in some cases by their own uh, groups, right? And like it's, there's no kind of loyalty to that, in my, my opinion. There may be internally otherwise, but uh, at the end of the day, it's about making dough and it's about um, exploiting uh, people. Well, and I, I go back to art imitating life again, once again. You, know, we were, you and I were talking about The Sopranos and how realistic that show was. Yeah. Uh, for the number of years it was on. And we just talked about Peter Edwards. He, of course, is the chief consultant for the the, the TV series Bad Bloods up here, which is based on the the Rizzuto crime family out of Montreal. Right. Uh, Peter knows what of he speaks, obviously. So uh, that's a pretty clear depiction as to what's going on. And it's... Uh, it's, it's kind of brutal. It's uh, very it's brutal. awfully brutal. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the old expression, live by the sword, die by the sword. Um, that's what happens. And, uh, you know, the expectations that we talked about it relative to the Angelus Tano hit, you've got two of the people that we've charged who are in Mexico somewhere. Are they alive or not? Well, I'm not really sure. Um, you know, just have to go to the Godfather, the hit on Michael Cor- Corleone, right? What happens? The two uh, assailants are, are killed at the spot. So um, they understand that we can follow the trail and we'll be looking to find out who committed the act in the first place. Do you ramp up uh, reconnaissance in, in, in a situation like this when you th- there's clearly activity? Because it can be dormant. For, it's, uh, not that they're being dormant, but I mean, the, you don't see it. It's not, it's not above the surface a lot of the time. Yeah, so off air you mentioned about maybe being in a jurisdiction where one of the organized crime figures are. You made the assumption they might be under surveillance all the time. I would probably go with that. And uh, we're not going to tell you if we are or not. And certainly we've got to be particular about where we're uh, putting our resources when those type of things happen, who the likely involved parties are. So we've got to be strategic too. It's it's troubling. And I know for some people there's an allure to it, but uh, there's a dark side to this whole thing. And I guess it's it's raising its ugly head in the last, well, two and a half years, especially around here. Well, and you mentioned it, right? And you'll notice I have not made a comment about there's no threat to public safety. When firearms are being discharged, there's a threat to public safety. And as I've talked about before... Well, one of the murders that ha- occurred, uh, I guess it was in York Region, with the, I think we've pretty much ascertained she was an innocent bystander. Well, she's associated with the, the yeah. party, but yeah, she's not 
not that we knew of, explicitly involved in it. Was she a Russian? I don't know. Um, but, yes, she wasn't the intended target. That was pretty clear. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The ongoing saga of uh, the cannabis operations, Chief, uh, just interesting to see the number of illegal operations is starting to shrink considerably. I guess the obvious question is, are they going on by themselves or are they being urged to? Uh, a little bit of both. Okay. Uh, we're certainly uh, keeping up the uh, pressure. Uh, we're down to two, actually, pop-ups, meaning they'll open on certain days but not others. Um, so we're continuing to do that enforcement through the provincial uh, cannabis enforcement team. Uh, we currently have 22 restrained properties. Um, and there's an option for those uh, uh, store owners or property owners to go to court and divisional court and get them returned. We've had that happen in one case. Uh, the provision is they have to enter an agreement with the court that they won't open it again for that purpose. We think that's uh, wise. And uh, so that's why we restrained the properties in the first place using the new legislation. So, uh, you know, if the intended effect is to get it down so that it's properly legally distributed, and I understand it's legal, legal, L-E-G-A-L, um, in those cases, then, you know, you've got two stores now open and uh, they'll be distributing. And obviously, they're, you know, we've seen the interviews with the store owners are quite happy about the distribution. So the customers, you know, you get to sniff the product in some cases, not in others. Um, but, you know, that it's properly um, uh, grown, distributed through the government and so on. For the illegal, um, we continue that pressure. How much discretion? Do, do police have in situations like this? Because I've heard from some of the owners, and this is going back a couple of weeks when you had more Ill, quote-unquote illegal operations, that said, look, at, we have medical users that, that are coming in here. Uh, they don't have access uh, for a variety of reasons. Maybe they don't have a credit card. It could be any number of things because you have to order stuff online. Uh, and they said, we're actually providing a service for these people, and we're getting hassled. That's their word, getting hassled by the police. Yeah, and that would be the case if that's all you've got coming to the stores, the medical users. And I do understand Justice Lofchak's decision before the new uh, laws came into uh, in effect in October last year. Uh, but really, it's a distribution issue. And I understand, you know, I can't get it online because I don't have a credit card. We now have two stores operating. If you know your medical user, then you can go certainly obtain it. And whether it has THC or just the CBDs, you know, you can make the appropriate choice. <clears throat> so really, it's a regulatory issue in my opinion. But, you know, if the view is for the medical uh, users, oh, no, there's nothing wrong at all with it in terms of supply and you don't know where it came from. No, there's no organized crime involved, all the rest of the stuff. Um, you know, let's look at the profits that the legal stores were getting. And I heard the store owner interview, you know, he's talking about fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 a day. This is substantial money. So it's not, you know, it's not a simple issue. Uh, it never has been. Um, so we have to still, in my view, we're getting huge public pressure, as you know, to shut down these places between uh, the traffic flow, they know it's illegal, what else is going on. Uh, so there was huge public pressure to do our job, so to speak, and we did. But with with that in mind, uh, you know, you're going to get a hue and cry, and I'm sure you've heard it, I know I certainly have too, that said, well, look, at you're, you're restricting access. But to your point about the ruling from Justice Lofchick, uh, it, I understand from a legal standpoint that oftentimes decisions like this can have precedent, but as far as the law is concerned, mm -hmm. does it have any influence at all on the law? No, because that decision predated the construct of the new law, and if somebody wants to test it, and I'm sure they will, uh, then the courts will decide on that. That's not our job to decide what the courts will view as what is constitutional or not. We act within the parameters of the laws that exist now. 
that's been the case for years and things change. I mean, the simplest example is the fact that 30 grams of marijuana, if you're of age, is not illegal anymore. So, you know, we didn't take issue with that. Uh, they've decided to change the law, but we're still enforcing around cocaine and methamphetamines and uh, PCP and all the other drugs that are out there causing harm in the society. And, you know, to say it's a simplistic, well, it's not causing harm. Look at the opioid issue right now, which is not getting better, it's getting worse. And you have people dying from drug consumption. So, you know, and that's around what's in the actual substance. Uh, my understanding and talking to one of our drug enforcement officers around fentanyl in uh, the other uh, things, I said, well, what would be, you know, the person's desire to, to test that if they know one, it's lethal and two, you don't know what you're getting. And, and she said quite simply, well, it does give an extra kick and they like the high. I thought, okay, but, you know, if I'm a criminal entrepreneur, why am I dealing deadly drugs to my customers? Seems to work in opposition to business theory, but that's just me. Is there any chance at all that we're going to get a handle on this? And, and I'm talking about the illegal trade now, not, not necessarily the cannabis thing. Uh, with the fentanyl and, and uh, oxycodone, I mean, there's so many different elements out on the street right now. And, uh, and, and clearly, judging from the statistics we saw from the, the Board of Health uh, a week or two ago now, um, I don't know that it's getting a whole lot better. No, and I mean, to control the market when you're talking about now that people can order online uh, from, say, potentially China or other word, other places in the world, it arrives in a package. Um, you know, what you're getting, that's very difficult. It's so multifaceted to control. Uh, but obviously, where we're dealing with, whether it's mid-level dealers or high-level dealers, we'll continue that work. You know, there's a whole discussion relative to the American strategy and the war on drugs. Could there be other solutions? Certainly there are. Um, is uh, prevention and uh, intervention with addictions easy work? I know the mayor has talked about it before, but let's just look at alcohol and how pervasive that is. Uh, the number of deaths that result from alcohol-related deaths actually exceed those from the other illicit drug market. So we haven't got a handle on that in particular. Uh, it continues to be an uh, issue around addictions generally. So, you know, to do a law enforcement strategy and say that's the solution, it's not. Is it multifaceted? Yes. Are we working with our partners to say how we can do effective interventions? Yes, but it's not easy work. The uh, minister, Bill Blair, the former Toronto police chief, of course, made an announcement yesterday about more funding uh, for some jurisdictions anyway. Training, I think, is what they're actually focusing on. Uh, explain to us exactly, because you were a breath tech for some time when you were on the street and police servicing, uh, about what kind of training is needed. We talked about the, the, you know, the materials and the, the equipment that you're going to use at this stage, but, but obviously you need to have officers that know where to apply that stuff. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't know, uh, I'm not going to uh, make comment about the, the feds funding it or not. We moved to this strategy over two years ago to train our frontline officers on standard field sobriety tests. And I've talked about it before, fundamental uh, position being, look at the observed behavior versus diagnosing what the particular substance is that the person is being affected by. It's the driving behavior that is affected. It's the physical behavior. So SFST or standard field sobriety tests delineate what that behavior is. Then we do the secondary step to either do uh, testing for alcohol through an intoxilizer in this case, or our drug recognition uh, experts doing the tests uh, to confirm what that particular substance or substances are. Uh, the threat is around the driving behavior and the carnage that results. Certainly, we've seen that from, you know, Mad Canada pushing forward. Uh, I don't know they've expanded. Uh, that's, you know, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. But I think, you know, they may want to change the acronym Mothers Against Impaired Driving. Uh, so we moved to that strategy. 
the funding because of the requirements under the IACP, International Association Chiefs of Police, around drug recognition experts require you to work with live subjects. So that's costly because you have to send them down to the states where you're not into constitutional breaches around somebody consuming a drug so we can actually state, yes, that's the drug that the person had. Um, so it is costly business. We certainly uh, s- uh, support any um, you know initiatives from the feds or province to do that work. We moved in that direction a couple of years, as I said, for the training piece, but there's still more work to be done. What about training itself and facilities and, and, and the training infrastructure? You mentioned, uh, the, the, you know, initially, of course, everybody had to go down. I think it was one of two places. It was in California, I think, yeah. it wasn't there? Yeah. Uh, uh, I think Jacksonville was the other one. Yeah. Why don't we have one in Canada then? It's, it's legal here. Isn't, shouldn't that be a prerequisite then? Uh, I believe it's around the subjects who volunteer to do it and whether they're consuming, because fundamentally you're giving them illicit drugs and then testing them for the presence of those drugs. In the States, they don't have that issue. In Canada, we would have that issue. So it's a constitutional issue. So so you don't foresee a, a training situation here in, in Canada anytime soon? Uh, unless they have a methodology, and I'm not that conversant with the DRE program, uh, unless they have some methodology that... Uh, you know, and it'd be a tough one. So if you have somebody imitate the symptoms, but that's just behavior. But they look at things like uh, pupil dilation, uh, other physical measurements that, that show you what, you know, whether it's a stimulant or a depressant or a combination thereof. Uh, so you really need to, in terms of credibility with the courts, be able to state, yes, you know, because the officers are doing it blind, so to speak. They don't know what the, the substance is. They say, all right, it's methamphetamines and it's this and it's that. And then you have a physical correlation between what the person consumed. They say, yes, you're correct. Uh, I think the integrity of those tests for court purposes uh, is quite high. So you need to do that work. Alcohol is a very different area. A uh, number of things I want to touch on here before we uh, run out of time. One is uh, youth crime. We had a terrible incident of uh, a shooting in Dundas just a week or so ago. Uh, young lad, and uh, it's, it's troubling when we hear about this sort of thing, especially because I know they're, they're underage individuals, but yeah. the fact that gunplay was involved in that yep. is, is very troubling. Yeah, and it's shocking, right? And often, as you know, the farms that are acquired uh, uh, can be legal, whether they're hunting weapons and then whether they're, you know, um, sawed down to other shapes and sizes so you can seal it better. Uh, but yes, the youth crime, it's always been shocking. Um, I know when I was a regional youth coordinator, coordinator back in the mid-90s, we had the homicide up at Limeridge Mall. And again, very shocking. Uh, They are infrequent, thankfully. They are always shocking. Um, And the circumstances around it are. Uh, But when Elvin Curling and Roy McMurtry were coming down looking at the roots of youth violence, and I was interviewed at that time, I said, you have to be careful about the demonization of youth. And they both kind of perked up. I said, you know, you have a small portion high-risk youth are actually conducting these things, and actually it's less than one-half of 1% of all youth. Uh, but the vast majority of youth are just like the vast majority of people, just trying to make their way in life, get through high school, do their assignments, all those type of things. Uh, you have to be careful not to stigmatize all of youth that say, oh, all youth are out of control now, and this is indicative of, of uh, their opinions. I meet with the Student Advisory Committee, and quite frankly, what I get back is most of them, and I realize it's the people who want to participate, most of them are just trying to make their way through the daily challenges in life. Um, So we've used a model based on Fred Matthews' research, uh, a clinical psychologist out of Toronto years back, and he did a ton of research on gangs. Uh, He called it Matthews' Law. Uh, The paradigm works. It's not exactly accurate. But he says 75% of kids are good kids, and there's a pretty positive message here. 20% are at risk. 
We know the criminogenic factors. There's about 12 of them. You can look at Alan Leishide's work, Dr. Alan Leishide. Um, you know, and it's, you know, lack of uh, parenting, caregivers. Uh, there's a whole range of things there that correlate. Uh, so you got 20% at risk and you got 5% high risk. And as I said earlier, actually that real figure is less than one half of 1%, which is very small, thankfully. But when it happens, we want to do interventions. We don't want to stream kids into incarceration. We know that often that just leads them to better training by fellow criminals. And we look at uh, pre-charge diversion or, or post-charge diversion. We're working with many agencies to do that work. And we found pretty high success rate in terms of recidivism, will they commit again, and in terms of straightening them out. And often what I do when I was dealing with this as a regional youth coordinator, people call in and say, you know, well, they should wear a, a sign around them that says I'm a criminal. And I, I refer them back to Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter and how mm. that kind of worked out and what was really going on there, one. And then, two, I said, is there anything you would have done between the ages of 12 and 17 that you might have had to wear a sign like that? Well, yeah, but that's different, is it? And, you know, what was required to get you on the, the correct path? And did you make any mistakes in those years? Well, yeah, but I learned from him. Okay. Well, in using that premise, I'm not talking about a homicide. That's very different. Sure. Uh, I'm talking about petty thefts and things like that, level one assaults, which is the bulk of what we uh, deal with in charges with youth. With that in mind then, I, as you painted that picture, uh, where are we with, with the, the youth gang problem here in the city? I mean, we, we had some terrible problems, some of them well-established, the Parkdale gang and some others, and uh, we've had uh, a number of incidents, of course, that uh, we're told involved gangs. Is, is it as rampant as it once was? Yeah, and again, the youth gang connotation. So uh, generally gangs were dealing with uh, early 20s, in some cases up and beyond that, we're actually talking about organized gangs that are doing that work in concert for criminal purpose. Uh, the 12 to 17, uh, you know, I was in the, the youth gang unit and uh, trying to just delineate who was in and what gang exists. It was so mutable. It almost seemed to change every week or every two weeks. Uh, we take a different approach, which is looking at uh, the level of criminality. So one of our programs is actually called Strategic Targeted Offender Program. So we have people who are committing high, you know, volumes of crime. And then we get them on conditions and we monitor them. We go knock on the door and see if they're in and abiding by their curfews and, and then whether they're stop, you know, candidates uh, doing that work either with the divisional youth officers or otherwise. So we're strategic in terms of who are we looking at. So, you know, to say it's a youth gang, uh, depends. Some people hold it out, oh, I'm part of a youth gang. Others, they're not going to tell you they are. And, you know, in terms of gang use, uh, we know that uh, some of the criminals are using younger members, particularly uh, you'll see it in Toronto, uh, to carry the weapons, do those type of things, right? And so the allure and the mystique. Um, for the anti-gang strategies, um, and I have listened to former gang members talk about it, they have said the most inter effective intervention was uh, a caretaker, a person who took an interest in their well-being. And often the reason they were migrated to the gangs is that's what those gangs gave them, a sense of security and all the rest but the price is high. We just talked about earlier with regard to organized crime. Um, the price is high. And the loyalties at the end of the day are not to you. But we've heard in the past, and I frankly saw in the past, uh, turf wars between some of those gangs. And you might, you're right, it might only be a handful of people. But and, and they would, obviously, we'd see spray painting with, I guess, their insignias in some cases and situations like that. I don't see much of that anymore. No, and I don't want to jinx it because we talked about shootings a couple of years ago. Yeah. And I said, I don't want to jinx it then. And now we've got the current problem, which is actually a more global problem. 
Um, so it's not quite as prevalent, but I certainly don't want to jinx it. And do I think certain small percentages are still involved in criminal activity? Yes. Uh, are they necessarily associated with the gang? Not necessarily. So you can still be involved in those criminal organizations. Just looked at the, how terrorists do business, right? Small cells, independent. It's not quite as coordinated. They're not wearing colors openly, that type of thing. For those youth that you are trying to reach out and, and trying to redirect, uh, and and I, I think there is a common sense of, w- of wisdom here that like, you know throwing them in jail and locking them up is not necessarily the answer. It could just make you know t- t- people that are around the edge go over that edge. Uh, do we have enough facilities? And I know that's not directly within your purview, but obviously you monitor that and see what's going on. Uh, you know, where places where they can get that sort of help, or where maybe you know that that halfway houses, a number of different things like that. I got. I, mean, I know we've got the the youth center up on the mountain mm-hmm. there, which yeah. uh, apparently is overcrowded. They've actually had to ship some people out to other facilities in other cities. I, th- I think the biggest. Uh Proper strategy is crime prevention. And I know it sounds kind of lame uh, because we go, oh, yeah, sure. It's that investment up front to deter them before they get into those modalities. So the prevention programs, we work in partnership with men, many agencies, John Howard being one of them. Uh, you've got the yard program. That's coordinated with the schools, with us, uh, looking at high-risk kids, educating them, having people that are interested in their well-being, you know, just using the the simple protocol that I've been able through my years of study to look at. Um, Programs like that will stream kids out of criminality. Isn't that better than arresting them and, you know, holding a prep conference about what you did and what you seized and all the rest? So um, I think there needs to be more work around the crime prevention piece. People think that's soft. My view is uh, just think about your own circumstance. If you had somebody who took an interest in whatever you'd done at that time and guided you out of it, wouldn't you appreciated that? So much smaller, the old, you know, ounce of prevention, pound of cure. I'd much or much rather invest in that upfront stuff. We still have to look after the other end. We do. But, the you know, that's the area that needs development. Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert. Uh, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.